See, please, if you have one of the church Bibles, it's page 599, 599. If you have the large print edition, it's page 929. We'll read the whole of the psalm, Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of man. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just come by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning, though in the morning it springs up anew, by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due to you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This psalm, Psalm 90, is a psalm about God and us, about the eternal God and mortal people, a holy God and sinful people. But above all, and despite all our failings, it's about a loving and compassionate God and His people. That's what the psalm is talking about. It contrasts God's nature and God's qualities to ours. The heading says, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. Now, there's been a lot of discussion over the years whether we should consider these headings, a prayer of Moses or a psalm of David or Asaph, whether we should consider them to be part of the canon of Scripture or just the psalm itself. But no matter whether it's written by Moses or someone else, it is clear it was written by someone who considers him and his people God's servants. Just glance down at verse 13, it talks about your servants. Verse 16 talks about your servants. He considers his people God's servants, as well as the object of his love. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. It's a people who consider God their dwelling place. That's at the very beginning. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And that despite 
God's wrath against their sin, which we read about in verses 7 to 9, and the trouble and sorrow that the psalmist expresses that they experience, verse 10. So despite these things, they're God's servants, they're the object of his love, and they consider God their dwelling place. So it would fit the context of, for instance, the people of Israel in slavery in Egypt. But no matter what context inspired the psalm, it describes a situation we can all find ourselves in, how to live our lives with all its highs and lows vis-a-vis a holy God. That's the question we have all come to terms with in our lives. Now, verse 1 sets the tone for the psalm. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And everything that comes after verse 1 leads to the prayer in the very end of uh, the psalm. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And that establishing that work of our hands, living in the favor of God, will depend on that verse in the very beginning. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. If God isn't your dwelling place, then he cannot possibly bless the work of your hands and his favor will most certainly not rest upon you. So bear verse 1 and the last verse in mind, the beginning and the end of the psalm, as we read through it and comment on some of the other verses. This is the context it's set in. That's what we need to keep in the back of our minds to understand what's going on in the rest of the psalm. God is eternal even before he created the earth with its mountains, even before these things which seem so permanent to us compared to our short lives, even before he was from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In verses 3 to 6, this, the eternity of God, is contrasted with our very limited time on earth. Verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just come by, or like a watch in the night. Our lives are short. One day, the psalmist says, we are like new grass in the morning, and then by evening it is dry and withered. Now, I don't know where you see yourself sort of in that beginning to end, new grass, fresh grass, dry grass, withered grass. Maybe you're young and fit and strong, and you're definitely sort of the fresh grass of the morning, sprouting, strong, vibrant. Maybe when you get to my age, it's not all that vibrant anymore. Things start to slow down a little bit, certain joints creak. You might get a little bit envious of your computer where you can just plug extra memory in when needed, whereas my memory, sometimes I'm really searching. I think I, I need to do something today, but what was it? I can't easily be upgraded like my computer can. But no matter where you are in that spectrum from young to old, there will be a time when you are like the withered grass after a hot day, when your life will draw 
to a close. So we need to have the right perspective on life. You might think 70, 80 years is quite a long time, and yes, it is. But compared to God and a thousand years in your sight is like a day. If you have that kind of perspective, then our lives are just a blink of the eye. We don't want to lose perspective and think that everything that is going on now is of prime importance. We would be a little bit like the rich fool that Jesus tells us about in a parable in Luke 12. If you want to read with me, it's Luke 12, verse 13 onwards. So Jesus is in a crowd and someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will turn down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but isn't rich towards God. So that man lost or maybe never had the right perspective on life, that it is temporary, it will end. How much time and effort do we spend on our careers, on planning for our future, on updating the kitchens, thinking about what car to buy next, compared to thinking about God's kingdom. And that's where we are blessed over more than Moses or whoever might have written this psalm. We have a wider view than the psalmist did. We now have an understanding <coughs> that we're not just like the grass that withers and dies, that we are, our souls are, eternal as well. We will carry on. It just depends on how and where our lives will carry on. So we have a different understanding. We have our New Testament knowledge in addition to the knowledge the psalmist had. So even though, yes, we agree with the psalmist, our lives on earth are numbered, are short, relatively speaking, but there is also eternity, and that needs to flow into our perspective. There is more going on than might meet the eye. Now, the next section of our psalm, verses 7 to 11, all lead up to verse 12. So let's, let's look at verse 12 first. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. That numbering our days aright entails more than just realizing, yes, our days are numbered, we won't live forever 
although true, of course. It's more than that. Gaining a heart of wisdom is more than wisdom applied to your day-to-day -day life, that you just handle your life well and you plan for the future. The wisdom that the psalmist is talking about as a prayer, teach us that we may gain a heart of wisdom is different. And that's what verse 7 to 10, talking about God's anger, indignation, in our inequities, our secret sins, his wrath, that's what it's leading up to in verse 12. We may think we're not that bad, we lead pretty decent life, lives, we often do the right thing, we try not to lie or cheat, we don't go around killing people. But verse 8 says, our secret sins in the light of your presence. It's not just about the things that are visible on the outside, but it's also the secret sins that only God, maybe, apart from you, is aware of. It's not about how good your life looks compared to others or how other people compare to you. It's not whether your life is pretty okay in your own sight, but it's about how God views it. And that's quite a different standard. What is your life, what is my life like in the light of his presence? When we stand before a holy God, what will our lives and our deeds and our thoughts look like in his presence? Well, Paul is very clear about it. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God's holiness is the standard, then we all fall short. Yes, there might be people who are worse than you, but that's not the point. We all fall short. The psalmist says it's about our secret sins, not just about those out in the open, visible to everyone. Listen to what Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So Jesus starts off with an Old Testament commandment, you shall not murder. And he sharpens it and he says, well, it's not just the actual deed of you killing someone. It's the thoughts in your head, the thoughts in your heart that count and that can be sinful. Just thinking you fool is already a sin. So if we come with that kind of perspective, then it's pretty hard to say I'm a decent guy. No, I just have to say I fall short. If I see myself in the presence of God's light, I fall short. Just like Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now if you look with me to verses 7 to 9, then you could say that seven and nine are like brackets around verse eight, 
verse 8, is the reason for his anger. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's the reason for the anger described in the verse before and after. So 7 and 9, consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. Verse 9, under your wrath. The reason for that is like a sandwich right in the middle of those two verses. It's our sin. And that paints a very serious and very depressing picture of our human condition. But it leads up once again, I said it before, to this verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So what is that about? What is it to number our days aright? What is it to gain a heart of wisdom? It is, and it definitely includes, realizing our sin before God. But it also points a different way forward. A way forward that enables the psalmist to actually end this psalm, Psalm 90, with, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. So you see that there's a shift. I said, look at the first verse, look at the last verse, when we started with the psalm. There is a shift somewhere from the moaning, the carrying this terrible burden of life, all the negative things going on, to something much more positive and a prayer for the favor of God to rest upon us. The psalm is not just about the eternity of God and the shortness and the sinfulness of human life. It's a prayer to the eternal God to have mercy on his people. Let's read or reread verses 13 to 16. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. The tone has changed, hasn't it? It's much more positive now. It is about not just a life of trouble and sorrow, but also a life of joy and gladness. So it begs the question then, how is that shift possible? How is that life of joy and gladness possible? Well, the psalmist says so very clearly. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. It's possible because of God's unfailing love and his deeds which would show us his splendor in verse 16. So the shift happens because of who God is. And what the psalmist saw as something in the future that he was praying for has been realized in Christ. In him we have this forgiveness of sins, secret sins or open sins. We have forgiveness of sins. Because of him, because of Christ, we can experience God's unfailing love in our lives every day. God's kingdom 
has started, it has burst into human existence, and we are, or can be, citizens of that kingdom. One of the first songs we sang talked about this adoption as his children. That adoption makes you a citizen of God's kingdom, and that can start right here and now on earth. But we're all aware we're also still part of this earth, so the trouble and sorrow from verse 10 won't just disappear. That's not what the psalm is saying. That's not what the New Testament is saying. The trouble and sorrow won't disappear until Christ returns. But amidst those troubles, we can have the joy and the gladness that the psalmist mentions. So in conclusion, it's a psalm that first of all reminds us of who God is and who we are and goes on to exhort us to lead our lives aright with the right perspective, with God-given wisdom. Our days are short, even if it might not always feel like it, maybe particularly if you're young, but they are short. So the psalm encourages us to gain a heart of wisdom, to realize not just the shortness of our lives, but also the need we have of God's forgiveness, of living our lives in such a way that God can establish the work of your hands. And it should be obvious by now that the work of your hands is not the career you have pursued or the house you have built it's talking about something else, something that goes beyond that limited lifespan that we have on this earth that carries on into eternity. That's where this wisdom we talked about is required as well, where this different perspective is required as well. What is the focus of our work? Is it something that God can bless, that has value for eternity. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard at our careers, because that's a witness in itself. Nothing wrong with prudent financial planning. You can put a new kitchen in your house, that's all good. But our perspective needs to go beyond that. What is the focus of our work? And is it something that God can or will bless? I'll leave you with those two questions. And we can sing two more songs just to contemplate those questions. A song, there is a hope so sure about that hope and about our life. And oh my soul, arise and bless your maker, the maker who is full of mercy and love. <coughs>